This is a Strategist, episode 998. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, I'm in Toronto. It's 11 p.m. at night. But you know what? I'm here for the team. I'm always here for the team. Yeah. I make yeah. every sacrifice necessary. I push off the recording. Do- I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know. I don't know. What were you doing until 11 o'clock at night in Toronto? that You couldn't even be checked into your hotel room. I imagine something scandalous. Can, can I tell you something? There's this fucking tech conference here, and there's so many fucking crypto bros everywhere. I can spot them. I can spot them, Carter. There's like there's because like, they can't afford to get into an Uber. They are trying to. They're trying <laughs> anything they can. I really like try. that. They're, they're all taking public transit to the hotel rooms that they booked two months ago for this conference. Yeah, uh, Carter. They're taking. They're, they're trying taking, to. They're trying to stay, stay it, in groups now. Oh my goodness! Six people to a room. It's two versions of themselves: the ones who booked the hotels three months ago, and the versions <laughs> who've showed up to this conference now. I feel like I can sense the dichotomy in their personality and um, yeah. their economic condition uh, on their face. Yeah. Corey, uh, it's uh, it's quite something. Um, how have you guys been doing? It's good. Good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. It's Father's Day, so I did the most dad things possible. I took a nap on the couch, mowed my lawn, watched Slow Horses on Apple Plus. That's pretty good. Uh, it's really good. That yeah. is a very compelling White Father's Day. Show. Carter, uh, did you also have a very good White Father's Day? <laughs> I um I was still in Surrey because, as you know, I was in Surrey when you Corey did and I not did have a good White Father's show. Day. That is a Brown Father's Day, correct? <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you something. I found some amazing restaurants, so I'm pretty happy overall. I can't I mean, believe you listen. found boiled cabbage in Surrey, BC. <laughs> listen, uh, there's some great food in Surrey, BC. I'm eating it all. And I'm going to be 10 pounds heavier by the end of this campaign. Uh, can I just say that uh, I've heard a lot of feedback about your episode that you did without me. Uh, and the people have spoken, Corey. Um, I'm needed on the show. That That is what yeah. that is the overwhelming feedback that, was- that we're getting. Uh, but that Carter, was Corey I and I say, both calling you and saying, we need you back. Yeah. I can't do another show just with this asshole. We need <laughs> you to enter, you know, be in the middle. I feel like you covered a, a lot of terrain. Uh, let's move it on to our first segment. We've got a lot to talk about. Our first segment, not all press is good press. Stephen Carter, I want to talk talking about-, about me. Are we talking about me? Stephen Carter, I, I want to talk about, should. I want to talk about a deep dive into your life, uh, your professional okay. life. Um, no, Carter, I want to talk about Michelle Rempel because oh. here's what I'll say. Two weeks ago, this was interesting. A week ago, it was compelling. It's now kind of starting to get boring. All the Michelle Rempel will she won't be pressed. And I, I want to kind of take a, a quasi deep dive. We could, we'll see how long this goes. But Carter, like, let's even escape the specifics for a second about Michelle Rempel's condition uh, in terms of how she might enter this race, should she? I want to kind of maybe stress test the notion that there is an, an end point. There is a certain sense of um, dissipation with uh, someone anticipating to jump into a race. Well, before we get there, I mean, for, for the benefit of anybody who's not knee deep in the Alberta UCP leadership race, this is for, you know, to, to run to be premier of Alberta, yes. effectively, to run for the UCP leadership. Current uh, Oklahoma MP Michelle uh, Garner-Rempel is uh is planning to potentially jump into the into the provincial race that and, is right and, and carter i wanted you to get your take first on this which is talk to me about this is this strategic right now all the stories that we're seeing going on to perhaps week two and a half or is this starting to get boring and what's the strategy at play here and how would you have done it if michelle rempel's an eventual 
running in the race uh, for her. So I know I've asked you three questions. Give me your analysis first, and then we'll get into strategy. I think that when she uh, last Thursday, I think was when the, the speculation really hit the, the the crescendo. And my thinking was she had about seven days on her ticking clock. Um, tomorrow would be an absolutely fine day to launch. Wednesday would be good to launch. Thursday would starting to be pushing it. Um, but overall, I think that she she's probably going to be in this race. Um, she certainly is indicating that she is. But perhaps the wrinkle that's keeping her out of it is whether or not she actually has the right membership requirements. Has she been member long enough of the UCP um, to to actually run for the leadership, which would be kind of a staggering blow if she she needed to get a special dispensation uh, from the UCP board um, to actually run in the race. So we'll see. Sorry, I'm, my house is on fire. Are, are you uh, are you finally being arrested? Is that is that Flair Airlines finally sending the authorities after us? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's my house is on fire. It's not a big thing. Uh, I'm sure things will work its way out. Uh, Great, Carter. I'm I'm glad your commitment is to the pod first and foremost. Uh, Corey, talk to me about this. Let's we'll talk about the specifics. Michelle Rempel-Garner, as you've mentioned, her uh, bid or potential bid to to replace Jason Kenney as the leader of the UCP and in turn becoming the next premier. But Corey, talk to me about the strategy of the drip campaign of the anticipation campaign. Um, When does it go too long? When does it not meet the crescendo moment? Um, She put out a tweet thread that said, I'm interested, and then there was anticipation, but there's been no launch yet. Give me your take on this. Okay, well, um, I think in some ways you might be looking at it backwards. You're assuming, why would you do that and then not launch? And what's the point of that and how ridiculous? But maybe look at it from a different point of view. Maybe look at it from the one that Stephen Carter just teased out there, where there's some speculation that she, well, she'll need a waiver because she doesn't have a Mm -hmm. UCP membership for at least six months. Now, If that's the case, and as everybody is entering the race and people are starting to firm up, you need to find a way to signal that you're interested in the race too, without going so far as to say you're in the race in case for whatever reason you don't hit those membership requirements. So in some ways, this was her placeholder. This was her save the date for my leadership Mm. campaign while I work out some of these nuts and bolts along the way. I think there's some some reporting that the UCP caucus is going to meet on this residency requirement tomorrow. I have no idea if that's true. I don't know why I'm repeating it. I just saw it on Twitter. But uh, if that's the case, if you're her, do you really want two weeks to pass from the Sony campaign launch and uh, the Gene campaign launch and Taves has launched even a week before that and all of those people being in the race and you're not yet and you're not even mentioned yet because you're waiting to figure out that residency requirement. By the time you're actually able to announce even if everybody plays ball and lets you announce people have picked sides. It's too late. You know, they, they picked their dance partner because they think this is the field. And so this was her way of signaling. That's what the field was while she worked through these issues. And I, I don't, I, I mean, it was last Thursday. Talk about hyper intense news cycles. If we're thinking by Monday, God, you haven't announced yet. You said you were thinking about it. Like, Three days ago, you know, I think. But in fairness, Corey, in fairness, Corey, the, the Monday was her first action. The the trip campaign of surrogates and other proxies and that momentum building started much. It was clearly engineered much before that. And that's what I'm talking about. Right. Because there was the pre chapter before the let me put out my my initial sort of tweet thread around consideration. Yeah. And so for sure. And actually, I think one of the more damning things and I almost allowed myself to get distracted by it is. It's not like nobody knew when the date of Jason Kenney's leadership review was. It's not like anybody knew there might not, didn't know there wouldn't be a leadership contest this year, potentially. Sure. Yeah. Why yeah. in the world did she not buy a membership 
when the calendar year flipped over? Why wasn't she keeping that current if she harbored even a modest amount of interest in the job? You have to know there's going to be a membership requirement. That's like every party. That's like every leadership. It, it seems unfathomable to me that she wouldn't have at least, if this is something that even remotely interested her, and of course it does, as we know, why would you mm-hmm. not maintain your membership in the party? How fucking crazy is that? Carter, let's talk about the specifics here, because Michelle Rempel-Garner had a choice here, whether it was to spend that $15 on a UCP membership or season tickets to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I think she chose the latter, Carter. I think it's safe to say she That's chose nice. the latter. No Westbrook, good. no Harden, Carter, Everything, no Durant. Everybody knows both of those choices are a real waste of money. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm shocked uh, at the choices she's making. I think she makes – I mean – Maybe she thought that I, I, I'm intrigued because, you know, she is very involved in in uh, Patrick Brown's leadership campaign for the CPC, which to which be seems clear, to, she's now stepped back from as she's kind of announced his consideration of the UCP leadership. Right. But I think that, you know, three months ago, she thought everything was going to come out differently. She thought that, you know, her primary focus would be on getting Patrick Brown or, or someone else elected as leader. Uh, it was very clear that she was standing against. Pierre Polyev. I'm actually interested about all kinds of different things, which is what is this signaling about what's happening in the Canadian in the Conservative Party of Canada? Uh, what's happening in the federal party? Mm. Right. We've seen uh, all of this ties together. This isn't just a united. This isn't just a decision where she's trying to think, you know, should I or shouldn't I? Let's keep in mind that when Jason Kenney decided to come and rescue Alberta, he too was facing a potential leadership opportunity, and he chose to run away from that opportunity because I believe he was polling at less than 1% in the actual, uh, you know, favorabilities. Uh, people did not like him and they did not want him. It just took those of us in Alberta a few more years to realize that. Corey, let's, let's you know, get your take on this because from the perspective of the point you just brought up, why did she not have a leadership? Uh, there's probably that element of like just the negligence. Uh, but then there's also the party side of it in terms of what they debate, what they should do. So give me your take on, on, you know, the fact that she doesn't have it. How big of a blemish is this? And then let's start getting into the strategy discussion for the party. What's best for them? What should her opponents say or not say? Uh, what would you be doing right now if you're Michelle Rempel-Gardner? Anything different than what she's done right now, which is telegraphing that, hey, listen, I don't have this membership and, and you guys need to figure it out for me. Well, um, I think that when you're a sitting conservative MP, nobody's going to give you too hard a time about not having a current membership, as long as it's like, you have in the past maybe it's lapsed for a bit maybe you bought yeah. it three months ago but you didn't buy it six months ago that's i don't think that's a huge deal it does seem like a bit of an omission like i said if this is something that interests you but you know party memberships are funny too some run on a 12 month cycle some are calendar year maybe yeah. she just lost yeah. track of it all maybe it doesn't matter at all i don't think it's going to hold her back i don't think people are going to say wow what a foolish leadership contest or contestant but um you know, it, it does sort of speak to an overall what's the strategy and preparedness here. And it, it makes you wonder, what does this launch look like? So let's just say yeah. my theory was correct. And she's just looking to rag the puck a bit. Um, you know, keep okay. it interesting. Keep herself in the conversation until she's able to announce uh, when she goes and announces. What does that launch look like at this point? Is it is it going to be the same as we've seen with everybody else, which is just the kind of the perfunctory 150 people in a room mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. at a media event? Or is she going to try to do something different? I think one of the challenges with the approach that she's taken, and maybe this gets back to your original point 
of it, like, isn't this enough? For me, it's not so much it's boring. It's that when you build that crescendo, you've got to have something at the end of it, right? So if you're if you're doing drum roll, please, drum roll, please. I'm going to yeah, run, I'm going to yeah. run, I'm going to run. And then at the end, it's just this underwhelming, like, oh, actually, I decided to run. My my tweet thread was the launch. That's kind of lame. So I, I, I think you've summarized it perfectly, Corey. That's exactly what I was trying to say, which is like anticipation, anticipation. Is she setting herself up for failure in a sense, right? Like, is she setting herself up unless she like has a big swing or a big hit? Does that launch automatically raise the bar on herself, Carter? Well, of course it does. Well, I, I, I want to hop in first because of course it okay, does. Go. Because she's saying, I'm going to think about it. It's really important. I'm going to go through all of this. So now the answer has to include that journey. Like she's she's boxed herself in, in that she said, I'm interested, but I've got to get through some things here. And now those things are going to be in part what that launch is about instead of what the launch should be about, which is your message and how you're going to carry yourself forward. Right. So, Corey, you're saying that the process of her getting to the launch will be as much part of it as as her message that she wants to put out there. Carter, I think you were going in with perhaps a slightly different take. I don't know. I was talking with some people who were suggesting that if Michelle Rempel chose to come in, it would fundamentally change the com- the complexion of the race. You know, this this race that we see is kind of bundling up at a big roll-up where, you know, Taves is going to be left at the front of the race without anybody to roll up into him. Um, there seems to be this sense that if Michelle came in, she would be not necessarily the leader on the first ballot, but she'd certainly be in a position where she could roll up an awful lot of votes. And maybe, in fact, even if she's not number one heading into the first ballot uh, or number one heading into the uh, instant runoff, she would be someone who is seen as as the most likely to 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 accumulate votes, the highest profile member, uh, the highest profile potential leadership candidate, and the one who will be able to roll up votes. So for me, you know, I, it changed my thinking about her launch because um, then then it's really about creating enough demand, right? So if you're being pulled into well, the race, if you're being yeah. pulled into the race, it's different than pushing yourself into the race. So Sonny has pushed herself into the race. Taves has pushed himself into the race. Brian Jean and Danielle Smith probably were the ones who pushed themselves into the race the hardest. And now you've and got- earliest, arguably. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And those two are related. And now you've got Michelle Rempel saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe that's an opportunity for people to be pulling her into the race. Maybe she's using this uh, and she's a savvy political operator. Maybe she's using this to to uh, ensure her money is going to be lined up to make sure that she's got her volunteers in place um, to make sure that the demand side for her entry into the race is strong enough um, so that she, when she does her launch, it's not 150 people in her home riding. It's actually a big launch. It's actually something that's going to have some some staying power. Corey, are you buying that? Like, are are you buying that what she's trying to do is set up a, like, I'm the candidate that they wanted to draft, and then they got me. They finally got me. You know, they, they convinced me. They showed me the money. They showed me the energy. Yes, I'll be your savior sort of thing. Do you feel like that's the game she's playing here? And if so, are you buying how she's selling it? Well, um, I, I I'm not... That's skeptical of it. It's very possible. I mean, it's one of the oldest leadership cliches. You know, yeah. ask me once, ask me twice, ask me thrice. Okay, you twisted my arm. I guess I must do it. The people demand it, right? I mean, this goes back to the times of the Romans and I'm sure earlier. This notion that you get forced into leadership, it's it's why, uh, you know, when a new speaker is elected, you you kind of faux drag them to the front, all of this bullshit. Um I just don't know that that's a very effective strategy in 2022, right? 
I, yeah. I, I just don't know that people are sitting there really in doubt as to people's intentions when every thought we have is on Twitter and we've got analysis on analysis and spin on spin. And everybody's been talking about the possibility of a Michelle Rempel campaign since, well, like since the last leadership, you know, she's always been on these lists of people. And so, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, it just, to me, it speaks to, well, I, I don't know. Let's put it this way. Do we really think you need two things for this to happen and you can create them both? Like they're not things that you just have to sort of accept you have or not, but you have to have a high enough public stature that people say, oh, thank God, Michelle mm-hmm. Rempel mm-hmm. is, or Garner Rempel is in the race, right? And then you need also this notion that it, you're you're pulling to service and you're there to save them, you know, like this this like I'm willing to do it for the greater good of the province or the party or whatever it is there. And there's a sense that there's no savior if not this person. I don't know that either condition is available. Um, there are so many people in this race already. It's a very crowded field. I feel like the strategy of of needing to be asked is more when you think that there's a field of midgets and you want to bring in a giant. Um, the reality is uh, Daniel Smith has strong name recognition. Brian Jean, strong name recognition. Travis Taves, huge caucus support. And they didn't wait to see if Michelle was going to enter the race. They didn't. So like, I'm just not, I'm yeah. not feeling it, I guess. I, I, which is not to say I don't even doubt her odds to be a good candidate. I think Stephen's right. She could be everybody's second choice and that could very easily put her into the, the premier's seat. I just don't know if this is an optimal launch strategy. Uh, Carter, I have to ask you, on on almost a strategist level, personal level, maybe, preference level, what type of candidate do you like to work with? Is it the one who's like, Carter, I've got a big enough ego to be like, and I know many much of this is strategizing, right? But is it the candidate, I got a big enough ego, I can fucking do this, like, let's go, like, I need you to help me do it? Or do you like the more exploratory argue charitably perhaps the more humble sort of you think i could do this you know should we put on an exploratory committee like what's your what's your vibe and what's your like and why because i think there's something there's insight here in terms of what i think your answer is going to be so so let me open that bracket for a second and get your insight on this before we kind of move on to the specifics of the ucp and what they should do with rempel's candidacy i don't want the the candidate that's worried that's looking over their shoulder you know like oh i don't know maybe someone better is going to come along I want the candidate that says, I am the one who will save this party from themselves. Uh, I am the only one that can actually take this to the next level. And that person is interesting to me. That person is the one that. Um, but Carter, so often of, we criticize that person on this show oh, no, and others. We'll, we'll downplay like... that. Per- we'll <laughs> downplay that in the media. We'll downplay that in public. Yeah. But I want people to come in and say, man, I've looked at the field. There is no one in this field that deserves to lead the province. I am going to have to do this. I want that level of confidence, right? And when you don't have it, it's such a burden, right? Because you're you're now you're talking the person into it all the time. Like you're hype man. You're hype manning all the time. I suspect you've got this. You're going to go in. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine in the debate. Your speech is going to be great. You're doing a really good job. And then you can never give criticism. You can never give a critique. Right. Because, oh, my mm. God, you know, the, 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 the facade falls off and, and everything is, is crap. And now you've got to build them back up again. Give me a strong ego that I can play with. And then, you know, my ego meets their ego. We have a fight. Everything works out. 
my ego wins. That, Corey, that, is part I mean, of preference a, your preference as well? Well, that, so that's a great point uh, because I've also had to work with candidates who have had that uncertainty to it and that like, how did I do? How do you think I did? How do you think I did? And that's, it is very tough to manage those candidates because to do what you need to do, you need to break them. And if you break them, you're not doing your job either. And so you do need a certain amount of ego and ability to, I mean, it's a very tough business. It's interesting as we're back. talking here, a general trait that I think leaders should have is that they should act sure, but be uncertain. So, you know, have confidence in these matters, but really mm. think about, is this the yeah. right course of action? Am I actually doing the right thing? Should I proceed this way or should I second guess that based on some new data that's come in? With many leadership candidates, they act uncertain, but they're sure. You know, they, they're they like, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to, I'm going to do it or not. They know. They fucking know all the way. Yeah. Through. It's a little bit of a dance. Corey, I want to go back to the question about the UCP. What should they do here? What's best for them? What's the strategy for them? Should they just, on whenever they're meeting, right, allegedly, should yeah. they just be like, fuck it, let's let her in. It's a, it's, a, it's a candidate that adds vibrance. Is it just as open and shut as that? Or is there more wrinkles to it in your mind in terms of how they should process this? I think at the end of the day, I would be floored if they didn't let her in um, because it, it would just be such a horrible look and it would it would look like an overly managed leadership contest. She is a conservative MP. It's not as though people are thinking she might be a closet socialist or something like that. Mm-hmm. So how, you got to do it. Now, do you give her a bit of a rocky ride along the way and say, well, why didn't you buy her membership? Uh, maybe you even have people planting doubt like, Maybe she was waiting for a resurgent wild rose if she couldn't be part of this party or just wanted to see where it you know, landed and wasn't actually united to or committed to a united party. The party itself shouldn't say that. Um, maybe operatives of one of the campaigns would whisper that. You're going to have to let her in. For sure, you got to let her in. Carter, you got to let her in? Open and shut case? Oh, for sure. I mean, imagine the messaging if you don't, right? Um, you know, no one else can beat Michelle Rempel. Like, you let her in and if she wins, great. And if she loses, then... You know, she should have been a member. That's what the people were looking for. This is, it's, it's lunacy for them not to let her in. Carter, you're a strategist on the Taves campaign. Let's use that as an example. You're a strategist on any of these campaigns. What Are you saying anything? What are you back channeling? And what are you, if anything, getting your candidate to say about a potential Rempel candidacy? Nothing. I mean, we're focused on the people who are in the race. And we're, I mean, realistically, at this stage, you are selling memberships and you are going around to groups of 15 and 20. There really isn't much of a media campaign. So mm. don't create a media campaign where you can't where you're uttering someone else's name first. Um, you know, the name that you, the names that you're supposed to be uttering are your own. So do that and then don't worry too much about the rest. And Corey, should uh, Mayor Bill Rock uh, endorse Michelle Rempel? I'm not this one. <laughs> Corey, question here, though. Is there anything that you can do? And this I find interesting, you know, with some of these long lead campaigns in the sense of eventually trying to get in there. Is there anything a competing campaign can do? Let's talk specifics about this race, but even more generally, to try to prevent someone who's going to be in from being in? Like, is there anything that you've seen in the past, you've witnessed, or is it just wasted energy to try to derail an entrant or a potential entrant? And that's what I'm kind of thinking right now. If Carter's analysis is correct, that the UCP and others feel like this is a big deal, should she enter? Is there any value putting energy into derailing her eventual uh, entry into the race, Corey? Well, it depends on what your analysis tells you, right? If if they are legitimately on the fence and you can sort of pick at the thing that puts them on the fence, then okay, that that you know the 
the war best one is the war not fought, right? Where you can just get your competitor off the field before the thing even begins. And we see that all of the time. I, I, some people also are not that that serious about it. They just like to be courted. They like to be asked. Think about Bernard Lord. Think about Frank McKenna. Something about those <laughs> New Brunswick folk, right? They just, they love yeah. to be courted for the big jobs. They never actually take them there. So say, for example, uh, Michelle Rempel is thinking, I want to do it, but I'm just not sure I can sell the memberships. Well, if you get some party luminaries that she trusts to call and say, Michelle, I don't think you can sell the memberships, that may have an effect. So I wouldn't say it's pointless. I wouldn't say it's useless. I would say that depends on it actually being a legitimate review of options. And I I am just too much of a cynic to believe by the time you put out the tweet storm that you're not at least thinking about it. That said, she did put out a, a, some tweets about the Conservative Party leadership, you, you mm -hmm. may recall, many, many, many years ago, and um, uh, didn't ultimately go for that. Carter, yeah, she wound up going for the interim, didn't she? Yeah, I, I think that on this. you can, you can, she, you, you can try and get her to to step out, but it's too late after she does her tweet. Um, it actually happens way in advance of that. Mm. Um, we have we have entrants coming into the Surrey race right now, and the time to get rid of them was uh, two months ago. Um, right. when they're, you know, it's all rumor and it's all innuendo. Now you don't have two months ago in the UCP race. It's, it's just happening too fast, but you, you know, right off the bat, you got, you know, if you're making, if you're running, you should be making the phone calls to the conservative MPs anyways, and asking them for their support. And when one of them says, I don't know, I may even consider running, you better make sure that she's not running if you want her out of the, out of your game. Um, none of them did that. None of them were able to keep her out. So I suspect we're going to see Michelle Rempel launch. Um, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, especially, you know, it might even play into Rajan Sani or it might play into someone else's hand that instead of all of these memberships going straight to Taves, uh, now there's some question as to whether some of them might go to Michelle Rempel, who might be more friendly uh, to your cause. So all of this is a game of, of building alliances and, and building you know, like even if someone's in, they are most likely to be your friend more than they are to be your adversary in this type of uh, mm. of uh, instant runoff. So no one should be worrying too, too much about Michelle Rempel coming in. We're going to leave that segment there. Move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, Uptown Funk. Carter, Corey, the liberals <laughs> seem like they're in a bit of a funk. Uh, articles published about the demise of Justin Trudeau, Scotiabank saying that he's doing nothing about the inflation crisis, multiple ministers not looking like they're on the top of their game, Algabra uh, in transport, Mendocino, of course, on the Emergencies Act, even Freeland getting quite a bit of criticism for her non-answers and lack of preparedness uh, in committee. And then, of course, Melanie Jolie uh, and the bureaucrat within her department that attended a party with the Russian embassy. You know, Carter, this is less about the facts of what's happening with the liberal government, but more about the narrative in a sense. And we see these every now and yeah. then, right? Like, you know, on some days, like as Corey and I would, would, would speak to in basketball terms, like the, the, the basket seems like it's as big as the ocean. You can't miss in other days, in other months and other stretches, Carter, you're like in this slump where you just can't make a shot and it and the media picks up on it and there's a kind of a stench to what you're up to. There's almost even quasi prescient pieces right now out saying that this is going to be a summer of dismay for the liberals. I want to kind of get your insider's take on this, which is this is a little bit fact, but a lot of bit story 
Carter, in a sense. And and how do we kind of get to these places where it just seems to coalesce, where you kind of look at, is there's this malaise or funk or sort of stink uh, on the brand? Talk to me about this. Am I making this up in my head or is this kind of real? And know. do we witness this cyclically across whatever brand color, whatever party uh, in, in, in all orders of government? Very real. I mean, uh, Chantal Hébert was just writing that, you know, the Liberals couldn't win again under under Justin Trudeau's leadership. That's, that's the piece I was referring to. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the, these are these are all over the place. And uh, are they true? No, they're not true. Are they false? No, they're not false. What they are right. is a reflection of two and a half years of going through COVID, uh, the end of a session coming, everybody seeing the finish line, everybody wanting to go home, uh, a, a, a war in Ukraine that no one anticipated. Um, problems on top of problems and everybody's just fucking exhausted and mistakes get made. So they're being made now. We're seeing them now. The session ends what on Wednesday. Um, they can finally go home. They, they just need time to regroup, rethink, but you don't get time to regroup and rethink when you're in the midst of, of, of session. The opposition's got the pressure on you. Uh, the circumstances have the pressure on you. And so you're you're flailing a little bit. This is government. And on top of that, you're in your third term and third terms, generally speaking, don't result in fourth terms. Um, That Mm, is mm. kind of one of the truisms of Canadian politics. Uh, You don't win your fourth election, Um, which is one of the reasons that was kind of like, you know, when you're looking at that early election call from from, uh, you know, the last time when, when Trudeau called it. You really needed that majority because you you needed that ability to go the full four years or you've really wasted it, which maybe was one of the reasons why they put so much pressure uh, on creating a deal with the NDP. But I think this is just malaise. I think that I think they're tired. I think they want to go home. They they this isn't a um, a series of structural failures where uh, suddenly good, you know, the good people that were there two years ago are suddenly bad people. I think that the good people that were there two years ago are now tired people, and we're seeing more mistakes being made as those tired people uh, are looking at the end of, of a session, a very normal circumstance. You know, Corey, what I find interesting about this is kind of like the triangulation of the narrative. It's like coming from all different angles, from unsuspecting voices, from certainly the post-media voices. And it's almost like, okay, are we highlighting these mistakes now to make the point that these people want to make? Or were these mistakes always happening and we just never cared about them or we never really had them bubble up to the surface? Um, I, I'm just kind of curious your take on like this general sort of cyclical malaise that we might see. And, and do you agree if the liberals are in a funk? And, and then we'll talk about the strategy related to what you do when you're inside a party and, and you're in one of these moments. Well, to Carter's point, I think if you were to run a news search for articles of this nature, you'd find that there's a big surge of them at this time of year. Parliaments get tired. It happens in legislatures. Mm. It happens in the House of Commons. There's a certain exhaustion that sets in. People just want to go home. And um, the day-to-day job in the public service, you just stack on session on top of that. You know, business has to continue as well. Uh, And you just can't wait for the politicians to get out of town at a certain point, right? And they can't wait to get out of town. And people start losing their minds. And you, you know, you get to this place where the house leaders stop trying to torture each other and both are just like, like let's get out of here, right? Or all yeah, of them. Yeah, case, yeah, right? Like, let's yeah. just find a way to leave uh, because it becomes just too ruthlessly brutal for all parties involved. And um, then they'll do things like, let's just run through the night. Let's be done with it. We're out of here tomorrow. Huh? 
you in? You in? I'm in. You in? Uh, and we're sort of at that point. Uh, it's a point where the media sniffs malaise because you got to keep in mind the media is in that bubble too and is dragged in there. But also they can see the fatigue and the frustration on these ministers' heads. Prep does fall. Freelance prep, no doubt, has fallen because we're all human and we all need breaks at a certain time. And uh, and it's just before the break. So this is when I think reasonably you'd expect people to be at their worst. Now that all said, governments do die of old age, right? It's, it's just something that happens. Uh, the shine comes off. The old tricks don't work very much. You've done all of the things you were excited to do. There are other things to do in the world, but it's tough to do that within your own brand. It's so difficult for any organization or person to reinvent themselves. That's certainly true of a prime minister as well. And so, you know, they, they will often take on these third term uh, projects where, which are both like more ambitious, but less relevant a lot of the time. And, um, and that itself is not a ticket to popularity. So I think you can reasonably say all of this is correct. It is correct that this is just a sign of the period, you know, of the year mm. that we're in, but it's also a sign of the larger cycle that we're in. And the two are just aligning at this moment. Right. But I, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we talk so much about the CPC leadership race and say, Hey, don't write off Pierre Polyev as much as he seems outside yeah. the mainstream is governments die of old age. And at a certain point, people just say, well, what else you got? You know, I've, I've yeah. tried barbecue sauce. I'd like to just smear some shit on my steak for just a dip. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's Carter's weekend. Uh, Carter, you were going to jump in on it with something, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, we, you know, we mentioned this idea that maybe Christian Freeland isn't getting the briefings. There's also a point where she says, I got this. I don't need a fucking briefing. Right. right. I've, I've faced the point. same questions in the house of commons uh, for the last you know, X number of weeks and, uh, you know, they haven't changed. They're not going to change. I've got this. And suddenly something shifts. Um, and it, the answer is not as crisp. Um, you know, it's maybe it's the exact same answer to a modestly different question. All of these things start to, to just weigh down on you. And I, I've seen it tons of times. It is super hard to stay focused this long uh, with this type of group of people in an adversarial relationship. And that's one of the things I was saying earlier, you know, about politics. Politics is adversarial. It's hard to fight all the time. You know, I, I, I've i even found it difficult to fight with the curse of politics all the time. And, uh, you <laughs> know, you, no one, you can't. Carter, Carter, you are you are needlessly getting so, us into shit, my friend. You are needlessly getting us into shit. No, uh, I need to do it. It's not needless <laughs> at all. It's uh, very important. Carter, here's, here's uh, you know, I'll start with Corey on this. Corey, do you write it out or do you push back against it? So let's say you're, you're both of your analysis is correct, right? I combine what each of you have said around Corey, uh, you know, making the point about old age. Carter, both of you making the point about being tired. Okay, write it out or do you push back against it? From a strategy perspective, what's the choice, Corey? I got to know when the curtain call is coming and I'm not saying it's there for Justin Trudeau, but at a certain point the the optimal move for everybody involved is to say, that's a wrap. You know, my time is done. Now let's see what else can happen. Because that means as a leader, you get to leave as a victor. You've won all of these elections. And as a party, that means you get to reinvent yourself and find that energy and that, you know, recreation is available to you. Let's be realistic. Parties try this doesn't often work because this fact is it's still the same party, right? You know, Chrétien de Martin was not a seamless transition and people did see it as a continuation. It's tough to break from the past, but it's not impossible. 
And um, I think that that that's the strategic answer. Human vanity gets in the way, though. The idea that, well, I could be the guy who gets four in a row. There's not very many who get four in a row. It's like me and Mackenzie King. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you start to, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Pick your metaphor here, but you go one longer than you should. You stay at the roulette table a little too long. And uh, I think that's more likely because of human vanity. Carter, so this brings up a strategic question for me. Well, two of them. Let me start with the first one. Uh, And this is more speculative than it is strategic, but, you know, we do all of it on the show, Carter. Do you think conversations are happening right now with Team Trudeau and the prime minister himself where they're interpreting some of the stuff that they're seeing and, and to Corey's point saying, guys, should we consider about like not packing it up right now, not this summer, but like, Hey, is this our final chapter? And if it is, are we writing it differently versus what we've been doing right now, which has perhaps just been straight up momentum carrying us from 2015. Do you feel like those conversations are happening right now? If they haven't been happening, perhaps they should be happening. Uh, it is very difficult um, to have these types of conversations, but even before they called the last election, they should have had a conversation that says, um, you know, very few people make it to three, very past three, right? Three seems to be the lucky number. So how are we going to leave this? Are you going to go for four? Because if you're going to go for four, it requires this type of government. It requires, you know, being combative. And maybe they're looking at it and saying, you know, it's going to be Pierre Polyev. The best person to beat Pierre Polyev is going to be Justin Trudeau. Um, that's that's a reasonable calculation, but it's also very it's very easily the wrong calculation. So I'm sure that the conversations are being held, but I'm sure they're not being quite as blunt as they should be. If it were me, I'd be blunt. Where yeah, what's what, what your exit you strategy? Saying? What's your exit strategy? When is it? How do you want to go out? Do you want to go out like Brian Mulroney, where you've achieved all the things you've achieved, but you've saddled the party with so much negativity that no one else can take it from there, or do you want to go out like? like Gretchen, where you try and hand it off properly, but it's just fumbled on the way. Um, do you want to try and do it like Pierre Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who handed it off and then took it back? You know, like, how do you want to put this? All, uh, you know, how do you want to put it all in place? How do you want to to make yourself um, the victor? Because you should be writing the terms of your exit now, because you don't get to write the terms of your exit, you know, in some at some future date. Why react to that from your perspective? Yeah, it's the old Yogi Berra line. If you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else, right? And with his closer advisors, he needs to say, how does this end? How it doesn't, I'm not saying I'm leaving. I'm not saying everybody can start talking about me being the former prime minister as I'm in the job. But how do we want to write this final chapter? And maybe it's not the final chapter. But that also requires a conversation. Because I'll tell you something, I think the liberals got somewhat jammed with this last term and going into this election, it's not just doing stuff in the term. That's not enough to get re-election. It's also mm. a plan for the next term. And I do feel often that long-lived governments in particular and overly ambitious governments, because they just run through everything, like the Roman candle is just shot off and they're just sitting there with a, you know, an empty tube at a certain point. But they get to the election and they say, look at us, wasn't that great? And they have nothing to say about what it means to yeah. elect them going into the next four years. And that's a really big risk with long-lived governments. They, they start to – they've lived their own press oh. for too long. They start to believe that, that they are the only answer to every question. Carter, jump in Corey, on this. Corey's describing the Allison Redford government in 2012. I mean, as much as we'd kind of come through and we had a bunch of new ideas in the leadership, 
those are those ideas in the leadership were all kind of put into the budget and and the budget was only like 15 minutes before the election but because we passed the budget we then jumped into the election and people were like yeah we saw what you gave us in the budget what's next and we were like what do you mean what's next the budget that was the thing that we gave you <laughs> and they're like no 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 what's next what's the next thing i mean you had to have a vision beyond just the moment um and it was really hard because you know obviously also we had the added complication of having uh, very little in the way of our caucus supporting us. So the vision and the ideas uh, that were proposed in the leadership didn't necessarily see universal buy-in. Um, like this is a complex business and Trudeau might be at the most complex moment of a complex business right now. Carter, I'm going to start with you on this this final question for the segment, which is there's probably some within the liberal ranks right now that are looking at this malaise and saying, what could this mean for me? And me being <laughs> someone who wants that job that Justin Trudeau has. Maybe I'm not a Christa Freeland, the one who's being touted and perhaps even crowned prematurely. But if I'm looking at this malaise, if I'm looking at this, uh, you know, uh, summertime sadness, almost that's being predicted for me and my party. Yeah. How am I taking advantage of it? Am I taking advantage of it? If I've got ambitions to to fill the chair. What are, what am I doing? Even if they're baby steps, talk to me about, about some of the things I need to be thinking about and what should I be doing even right now? You know, people kind of poo poo the baby steps, but the baby steps are the things that you need to do before you can run, right? Like you need to have an organization in place, uh, before you can, you know, jump up and suddenly say, I'm the, I'm the next leader. I mean, people are already doing this. You can see MLAs or I'm sorry, MPs going across the country and, and, meeting with people. And one, one of the reasons that you may be even starting to see this malaise taking its different forms is that, that people are out instead of at home, right? They are, mm. they are already starting to tell the story about why they would be a great leader or why they should be the person that, they, they, that, that assembles the next great leadership team. Because keep in mind, like you don't have to run for leader to, to, to use this type of opportunity to move yourself up the list, right? Like you can run for, uh, you can just simply work on someone's leadership team and and find yourself in a much much different position yeah, than you'd ever true. hoped to be. Um, so you're just you're using this this chaos, if you will, to really start to spread out what it is that you think you can achieve. And you're going to say, right now, I'm you know, if I'm if I'm an MP, I'm looking at the region that I represent and deciding, am I the MP of influence? Mm. If I'm the MP of influence in the region, then whoever becomes leader is going to come through my door, right? And I'm going to build out that that influence in that region. I'm going to own Calgary, or I'm going to own British, the lower mainland of British Columbia, or I'm going to because keep in mind the Liberals still have you know a convoluted leadership system with points. If there's right, going to be right. anything but a you know, if you're a Quebec MP, you've got tremendous opportunity. Uh, I mean, George Shahal and Randy Bossano have huge opportunities to make their lives a lot better. Um, just by taking a look at Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta and saying, we're going to be the members of parliament for all these areas. Corey, round us out on this. Uh, the same question to you, right? You're, you're this MP, you're a minister, you're seeing, I don't know if I'd call it chaos, Carter, but I point, point taken, right? You're seeing this perhaps lull. It will be chaos at some point. You uh. may as well get ready for it. Interesting. Well, Corey, maybe even to look at take Carter's thesis here to tell me if you agree with it. What is that MP, that that person in the ranks right now doing 
if there's a predicting sort of lull within uh, the liberal ranks or in the liberal government? You know, one of the great things a local MP has going for them at a moment like this is that being a good soldier looks exactly like setting up a leadership bid or setting up a team to support a leadership bid. Get so it can be cloud cover. Well, yeah. it doesn't even go out. Make sure constituency association, yours is strong. Make sure your neighbor's constituency associations is strong. Make sure the coffers are all full. Make sure that there's a big, powerful machine. Uh, now, you're probably going to be the one on top of that in your perfect scenario here that is able to deliver when there is a need for mm. delivery, whether that delivery be a general election or a leadership contest. And so a strong organization is useful in a lot of contexts, right? It's like buying a computer. You don't need to just look at porn on it, Stephen. You could actually open up Excel. If what? you want it as well. And, and so get yourself that good computer so you can open it up and, and be appropriate to the context. Again, Stephen, don't use it for porn, particularly not in a, you know, a setting like this where you're talking to your two friends. Yeah, Greg Carter, oh, like you don't. I more... closed that browser window. Did that still stay open? Well, you've got a lot oh, of reflection on your glasses. And um, I just, you know, we live stream now, so it matters more. Oh, it does matter. I'll, I'll close that browser. My, my bad. Uh, Tubin Carter, uh, finish us on on, on this. <laughs> uh, uh, if you were to offer one piece of advice, crystallize this for me, because I think there's something here. Crystallize this for me. One piece of advice to someone in the liberal ranks, what would it be uh, as they as they head into summer right now? This is the, the individual or individuals with ambitions for, for taking the chair, taking the party. What would it be? It's all the same. Build teams, right? Build teams. Whatever's going to happen in the next four years is going to lead to some sort of chaos. That is going to either be uh, Justin Trudeau sticks around for one more term and tries to defeat whoever wins the Conservative Party leadership. That's going to be chaotic for you. Um, if there's a leadership, that's going to be chaotic for you. Uh, all you know, all of them come from the same place, which is building out a structure that everybody can uh, have confidence in. So you know, even if you're a former MP. Right. You could see someone like Kent Hare jump back into the fray, build up Calgary Center. Calgary Center's, you know, used to have the biggest war chest. Maybe it needs to have the biggest war chest again. It's got three years without an MP. You know, if you want to be the MP in Calgary Center, um, now's the time uh, to let you know. Like, that's what needs to happen. We're going to leave that segment there, move it on to our next segment. Our next segment lessons from our older dying cousins. Corey, I want to talk about the United States of America. Oh, it is a it is a place that we used to frequent traveling. I don't know if you guys have been there in a while. I haven't been I have there not. since twenty sixteen. Sixteen. I went down there. Yeah. I went to Nashville. I I don't know if you guys know, but I I won some awards. Um, uh, your best... team won awards. Congratulations to your team, Carter. <laughs> there is there. I'm saving you from yourself here. This is one of the many instances I... on the pod. I won because I was okay. there to pick them up. Carter, I want to talk about this. <laughs> we we met, we talked a bit about the January 6th hearings, Carter, from the perspective of how they're doing in uh, in terms of the committee communicating their message, right? We talked about the, the hiring of the former ABC News director and these videos that they're creating. But, Corey, I want to talk about this, this poll that's out, which says 6 in 10 Americans say Trump should be charged for January 6th. Uh, and the majority of Americans, you know, nearly the same amount, um, figured that this committee was also relatively fair in how they've been proceeding with the hearings thus far. So there's two questions here, right? The second one we'll address second, which is the political effectiveness of this committee. 
But Corey, talk to me about the overarching question here, which is uh, really the fact that, you know, this rule of law that we've been dis- you've been discussing is now being kind of taken in through the political lens, like, well, fucking everything else. Your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, let's start with the obvious. We shouldn't be determining whether someone is prosecuted or not based on how popular that prosecution is. If we want to say we live in a, you know, a society with a rule of law. Uh, there's this the notion that uh, justice is blind. Well, justice is also, you know, kind of deaf and doesn't hear the crowd shouting for one outcome or another. And you've got to uh, you got to kind of live that. And the more you drift from it, the more you're going to drift from it because you create all sorts of edge cases here. Now, I'm not naive and prosecutors make decisions to prosecute or not all of the time based on uh, the, the palatability of it, the consequences of it. You can take a pure utilitarian view of it and say, what if by doing this, we create so much more ill in society? What if by prosecuting Trump, we start a civil war, right? You know, just to use the most extreme example possible. And um, there's always a place for judgment as there is in, in policing, as there is in so many other things in life. But the more you defer to judgment and away from the rule of law, I think the shakier you are long-term uh, because there's also utilitarian value to rule of law in the long-term and saying, don't actually care. Don't actually care because you can't be mad at me crowd. If I don't react to the crowd one way or the other for the cheers or the jeers. Uh, but America's in a very dicey place right now. Uh, six in 10 Americans think he should be charged. That doesn't surprise me. Um, because it was something, you know, it's 58% when you get into it. And it was 54% in the poll they did previous, I think, maybe 52. Either way, it was a majority then. Um, But that's not how this works. And that doesn't tell us anything about what the reaction will be from the other 40% who are a big part of America. Carter, your your take on this in terms of Corey's analysis here that, you know, uh, running scenarios based on popularity perhaps not the right idea your take it's totally not the right idea you don't poll to determine i mean you do a poll when someone's guilty or not guilty by by asking the jury and it needs to be unanimous uh and those people pay attention and they study the evidence um one of the things that really bothers me about the united states is they think they're they're the only democracy in the world and they're the only ones who've ever gone through this and Mm. that's just simply not true Um, There are many democracies in the world. Many democracies have, in fact, prosecuted former leaders. They have gone through, uh, you know, a a judge and jury situation. Some of them have been convicted. Some of them have been acquitted. The the, the democracy in general continues forward. Where the democracy tends not to continue forward is when the rule of law is subverted. Now, we're used to the rule of law being subverted by the victor, right? The rule of law is subverted by, uh, you know, Trump ignoring things or pardoning his cronies mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, allowing yeah. this, the, the January 6th um, uh, coup attempt to occur. To occur. Um, all of that is interesting, right? But it's not, you know, it's not this situation. This is a situation where the, there's an independent judiciary who has been set up to deal with this situation. The framers of the Constitution, the ones that the Republicans hold in such high regard with the Second Amendment, but only that amendment, they actually put together a Constitution that they felt would, in fact, be able to sustain this type of challenge. That's why they built them as three separate branches of government. Um, It needs to go through that. Right now, uh, the greater threat, in my mind, is that they choose not to prosecute and that side feels emboldened to take more action. This isn't sh- shouldn't be taking a look at 
through a microscope and just say, okay, what is this about Trump? Yeah. Trump is part of this. Trump is a big part of this, but it's also the Texas GOP who've decided that basically secession should be back on the agenda. They want to take the Voters' Rights Act off the table. They want to, you know, really put the United States of America back into a box it hasn't been in forever. That to me is the is the problem that we're facing. And if you choose not to prosecute Trump because you're afraid that you're going to lose the union, you've already lost the union. Right? It's already gone. All that's left is it's just hanging on by a thread, awaiting a madman to be reelected in 2024 who will ultimately destroy the country. Corey? Yeah, well, there's a lot that Stephen said there, and I think I agree with almost all of it, if not all of it. America's in a really bad place right now, to state the most fucking obvious thing ever. They're so deep in meta-analysis, they have absolutely lost the goddamn plot. They're arguing about things that don't matter at all. Everybody is. The right, the left. They are arguing about things that do matter a lot, too. Don't get me wrong. But like the entire cacophony is no longer functioning in any way remotely resembling like an operating state. I saw this analysis the other day, and it's just one columnist's opinion on one thing. So I don't want to like blow it up to be the position of the United States, but it was Joe Biden's, uh, you know, Merrick Garland, sorry, uh, as AG should not be looking at prosecuting Donald Trump because that will show weakness, right? And you wouldn't want to show weakness there. And that's, can I count the ways that that's insane? Almost. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's probably about three, but America is in a weak place and it is important that they show that the rule of law matters here. Uh, the fact that they're just, you know, they're crossing every single one of these norms. You have candidates putting out videos about going rhino hunting, Republican in name only, and you know, going door to door. Like everything's, yeah. every that norm is gone. Nuts. Every norm is gone. Yeah. If you haven't seen the video, I mean, I don't even want don't to see the video. So, um, Corey, yeah. can I ask, and I, and I don't mean to like, maybe I do. I'm going to ask it this way. Is the committee at all to blame for leaning heavily into the politics of it, the theatrics, the production? You know, is it any surprise we've gotten to the point that 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 a poll is kind of now put out there to say, like, how well is this committee doing? Is it fair? Should we prosecute? I mean, like, have we kind of just leaned so much into the political part of this process that this shouldn't yeah. surprise anyone? Mm, two different questions, as you said yourself, Zane. How well is the committee doing? Yeah. Is totally fair ball. That's that's something we've been talking about since there's been committees. Has the committee made a compelling case? What the committee is doing is not the same necessarily as what you know prosecutors will be doing with Donald Trump and whether they're going to take this evidence and move forward. Um, I don't think that it's wrong to ask: Has the committee put together a compelling case? Have they put the witnesses through their through their you know questioning in an appropriate fashion? Um, that's, that's kind of the system working. What bothers me is this notion of saying, all right, all right, that's all good. Now, now, how would you want to direct the independent judiciary to act if you had the ability to do that? That feels a little bit different to me here. I don't blame the committee. The committee is trying to create the public view that Donald Trump, um, did exactly what he did, frankly. And it sounds like 60% of Americans are there. So uh, the, the problem is it, that's got to be 80, 90 percent or or else the, to Stephen's point, it's a minority here that is pushing around the majority. Lest we forget Donald Trump lost the election. Right. And 60 um, percent believe he should be charged. Doesn't mean his odds of winning are that that low because of so many other factors out there, including 
states basically openly saying that they would throw an election to Donald Trump in the future, irrespective of results, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's we're, we're teetering on the edge anyways. Like, I, I think that the only way back for the United States, frankly, is to prosecute Trump, is to show his followers that the rule of law still exists. Now, will some followers take it too far? Absolutely. There will be a group of people who say they are prosecuting Trump because he is saying the right thing and this mm. is someone coming after. Of course, that's going to be part of the situation. But there might be another set of the, of the population that sees it unfolds and see, sees the evidence that's been presented by the January 6th committee um, through a, through the trial, through the discussion. And, you know, this he could be acquitted. Of course, he could be acquitted, but he also could be found guilty, both of which would be very dangerous. But not prosecuting him is the ultra, ultimate danger um, because you're now in a place where uh, the rule of law no longer matters. Some people can get away with breaking the law and other people can't. And that's just, it's death to a democracy, Zane. Just death to it. Jesus Christ, Corey. It was getting a little heavy. I just kept saying. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our final segment, Carter. We do this for you. Everything here is for you. Of course. Are we at the end already? Of course it is. Stephen Carter, overrated, underrated. I mentioned this earlier, but Scotiabank and few economists at Scotiabank are using their institutional voice to ultimately say Justin Trudeau is shirking Canada's inflation fight. Is that overrated? Or underrated in your mind in terms of that that broadside that uh, or that that sharp elbow against the prime minister and his government? Well, it wasn't like the prime minister wasn't being blamed for it, anyways. I mean, it's totally overrated. the The inflation is what he's being blamed for. The price of gasoline is high. That's what he's being hit with, and that's what he's going to continue. My food costs more. My gas costs more. Why isn't Justin Trudeau doing something? Quite overrated or underrated, Scotiabank using an institutional voice to to give a sharp elbow to the PM. Uh, politically overrated, um, but from a policy point of view, kind of has a point, don't you think? You know, I mean, this is it, inflation is. We've talked about this in different contexts where if the government really goes in trying to give people money to stop the fact that money is not flowing as freely from banks that kind of defeats the whole purpose and then you just get yourself in a really bad situation here so um you know not not wrong not likely to have an impact Corey, i'm going to stick with you for our next one and it's also about trudeau we've been talking about this if i can call it the funk that the liberals are in is that funk Corey, in your mind overrated or underrated right now <sighs> i could give either answer I think at give this me the very justification mo- for both. I'm actually more curious than you yeah. showing your work than anything else. So for overrated, a couple of reasons we've talked about. One is it is the end of session. You know, yep. Funk is the natural state at the end of session. The idea there's going to be a summer of malaise seems a bit ridiculous to me because the liberals are not the the game during the summer. They're going to be talking about the conservative party leadership race. Mm. And we're going to see how that's going to unfold. That's where the eyes are. So I don't really see that there's, you know, a even normal amount of risk. It seems like a lowered amount of risk for the liberals going, going throughout their daily day work there or day to day work. But when you think about underrated um, in some ways, I think the liberals are in denial of the fact that there is actually a third term malaise setting in, you know, they Mm, can rightly mm, point to an ambitious policy agenda that they've set over the past couple of years. We've talked about how they're probably one of the most transformative governments of our time. But that doesn't sort of change the feeling of drift that we've got right now on a day-to-day operational level or 
when we start looking towards the horizon as to, okay, liberals, but what next? And um, I think that because of that partisan back and forth, they see it just as partisan back and forth. And they're not seeing the legitimate criticism there that um, governments get old, governments get tired. Carter, the liberal funk overrated or underrated? I think it's overrated if they choose to address it and be aware of it. It's underrated if they allow it to fester. Um, so if, if, if they're aware of it, then don't, don't worry too much. Take action. Make sure you're coming back in the fall with a strong agenda, uh, good throne speech or whatever you need to do or carry on the, the, the turn, you know, whatever, whatever you're choosing to do, but make it strong. Um, but you know, if you, if you don't see it, if you don't see that it's happening or you think that it's just normal, you're probably in a lot of trouble. Carter, I'm going to uh, stick with, I'm going to stick with you yeah. for our next question here. Yeah. Yes or no, Carter, Michelle Rempel-Gardner entering the UCP leadership race is a game changer. You said that others have said so. Do you agree that her candidacy would be a game changer, yes or no? No. Corey, yes or no, do you think her candidacy would be a game changer? Yes. Yeah, I don't think that it's because she will all of a sudden, I think Carter made the compelling case. She'll be everybody's second choice. She was outside of this warfare. One of the things we were actually- got so many more words. I had like one word, yes or no. And then you get like a, like an essay. Because there's no fucking rules here, man. Come on. Just, just you're new. Jesus. Keep going, Corey. (laughs) You were, you were doing so well before Carter said more words. He was only allowed one. (laughs) Go ahead, Corey. (laughs) Everybody else who was in the race had, has associated in some way, shape or form with a side in the Jason Kenny versus not Jason Kenny fight. And by not even having a membership, apparently, perhaps Michelle uh, Rempel-Garner has managed to find her way out of that box. I like that explanation, Corey. For our final question, sticking with you, sticking with Michelle Rempel-Garner. This time next, next week, Corey, this time next week, is she in or is she out of the UCP leadership race? Well, in, for sure. For sure. I would say in by the- this time Friday, she's in. Ooh, Corey's actually taking a prediction question, he's, giving a straight answer, a, and actually limiting the terms of the question, Carter. Being a Carter there. I, I, yeah, now Carter, I feel like I need to hedge and take the traditional Corey position. Carter, this time next week, what is, what is Michelle Rebel? Is she in or out? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up Corey. We're going to be covering her announcement live when we do Thursday night's podcast for the subscribers-only Patreon version of this strategist. If you missed, by the way, this last strategist episode, uh, the Corey and I really dug deep on a, on a number of issues. And I think that we've been proven to be perfectly correct on everything. Isn't that right, Corey? No, I would agree with that. Um, and in, yeah, if you're not paying $6 a month, you'll never know. So you'll never know, but, uh, you know, the $6 has been pretty, pretty well spent for those of you who are spending the six bucks. Good. Way to tell people how to feel, Carter. I like that. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 998 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, and we will see you next time. Bye.